Welcome everyone to episode 318 of Fergo and the Freak. This is a really special episode because I am talking with Jessica Dunn, who has done something absolutely incredible, and that is walk the Kokoda track. And I, when when Jessica told me that she had done this, I, I had to do a podcast about it because it is something that I think is extraordinary. So thanks for joining me, De- Jessica. Thank you. I'm excited to have a chat about it. It's been a long time. Yeah, yeah. Um, so tell me, how, when did you first decide you wanted to do this this trip over to PNG to do the Kokoda track? Um, so I, I did my Duke of Edinburgh Award when I was at school, mm. and it was something my dad actually brought up. Uh, we, I mean, when we lived in England, we used to, you know, do a lot of walking and stuff, and he said, uh, one day do you want to do Kokoda? And mm-hmm. it was sort of one of those far off things. Yeah, sure. Let's do that. Uh, and then he did in 2014, he and my mum did the Everest base camp walk. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, they're, they're really, you know, obviously boring people don't have an adventurous bone in their body. <laughs> um, and when they, they, they both got, um, ill on that trip. And yeah. So when they came back, Dad said, "You know, look, I'm not getting any younger. If we're going to do Kokoda, we have to do it now, so that I can at least enjoy it." Mm-hmm. And so then, uh, like two months later, we were booked onto a trip and we were doing Kokoda. <laughs> wow, that's incredible! And for people that don't know, the Kokoda track, basically, what happened in World War Two in July in, in 1942, Japan decided that it was going to invade the north side of Papua New Guinea, and they wanted to travel down overland to Port Moresby, to capture Port Moresby. And the reason that they were going to do that is because it was a good staging area, not only for what they wanted to do, which was to go into the north of Australia and then through the Pacific, but it also allowed their military to have a big base that would allow them to protect their shipping because Japan is an island nation, obviously, and shipping was absolutely vital to their war effort. And so the only way through was through this track that is an ancient track. It goes basically from the north of the island down through to uh, Port Moresby. And it is through basically some of the the thickest jungle on, on planet Earth. Um, it, it, Very muddy. Yeah, <laughs> the most mud I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and look, they, the Japanese themselves, they said like nobody returns from Kokoda. It was for them the worst place in the entire war effort in terms of the everything. Basically, the environment is trying to kill you the entire yeah. time. Um, disease was terrible for them, and as it was for the Australian troops, when the the first Australian troops that arrived there to try and defend the track were what we would call today reservists because our army wasn't in Australia. Our army was army. in – it was in Africa. It was in and, Europe. And you have to remember they were also wearing uh, uniforms which had been designed for the European winters. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they rocked up in thick khaki wear, whereas that's, it's a tropical climate in PNG, yeah. and they were um, so ill-prepared for it. And like you said, reservists in – like the toughest conditions and God, it must've just been awful. 
terrible, terrible. And they were like they were under equipped as well because all of our yeah. equipment's going elsewhere. Um, and it's an it's an incredible story and one of the greatest stories, not only in Australian military history, but in Australia's overall history and the World War Two effort as well. Um, just overall. So you make you as a family you make this decision to go and walk the Kokoda Trail. Yeah. Do you book through a certain tool company? Like uh, how do you start that? Well, my my dad uh, loves a bit of research, so I left it in his capable hands. And we did originally book with uh, a, a tool company whose name escapes me, but a, and we we wanted um, we had like an Australian guide. We were promised that there would be other people on this tour, mm-hmm. and then about three or four weeks out from our actual trip, which was in July 2015, uh, we, we started getting just a weird feeling about the company and that they weren't delivering on what they were promising. Mm-hmm. So dad eventually made the decision. He did some more research and found another company called Backtrack. Mm-hmm. And they had a tour that was leaving like the same day or, if, or the, maybe the day after. And we made the decision to change to this group which was probably the best thing we did for our trip mm-hmm. um because we later found out that this other group was just two other people um they didn't have an australian guide they didn't get like the history lesson that we got mm-hmm. and so we went with uh, a group called backtrack okay now you never do it on your own god <laughs> <laughs> now how much did it cost per person oh i think I think about two thousand dollars, okay. just like for the trip, sort of jumped out at me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was about that. It was, and that for us included, we had a porter, um, that had like carried one of our bags, and that was like your food and everything for the yep. trip. Okay, so you fly into Port Moresby. What is that like? Because Port Moresby, in my understanding, is very different from like anything that you would find in Australia in terms of it's a it's a major city but at the same time it is just different it yeah we were uh, advised not to leave our hotel okay. that was yeah it's, it's consistently rated as one of the most dangerous uh, places in the world mm-hmm. uh, which is so unfortunate but we yeah we were advised not to leave our hotel we did do a day tour with our group yeah. Um, on a bus that had like grates over with the windows, okay. uh, and you know we we could tell when we were in areas that you wouldn't want to hang around in, kind of thing. Yeah. And because even our guides got a little bit tense. Uh, I, it, I mean, it was hard. We didn't get to see too much of it, but it, it was it's somewhere I would like to go back and actually have a look around, but. Mm-hmm circumstances i don't know how i'd go <laughs> yeah yeah so I, I take it you go from the hotel to a a staging area or the starting area how long was that trip in the bus to get to that place and what, what did that place look like did it did it say did it look like the start of a, a special trail or did it just look like a trail into the bush well we flew out from png mm-hmm. uh to a place called uh, Poppendetta. Mm-hmm. And that was on like a propeller plane, which 
was probably the scariest part of the whole trip for me. (laughs) And then uh, it was a three or four hour truck ride. Yeah. Uh, We were in the back of a truck with wooden seats for like three or four hours. And like no one had warned us about this part. Yeah. And it was on a dirt track through the jungle. We had no idea where we were or where we were going really. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, that was, but do you know what? It was a really good bonding experience because there was 18 of us on this trip. Yeah. And mm, obviously we didn't know each other. And it was just a really fun way of, um, I think, breaking the ice. Yeah. Yeah. And we we quickly built up a rapport with each other. And then we uh, we arrived at Kokoda Village, which is, like a, just a small village, um, like grass huts, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And we arrived there. It was quite late at night by that point and uh, slept in our tents. And then, yeah, woke up the next morning and started the hike. And about uh, maybe half a K down the road was the uh, gates that say like the Kokoda track. So there's gates at either end. Okay. So, th- okay. So this, th- this is interesting because, in my mind, you start in the south and go north. It makes way more sense to start in the north and go south and you end up in Port Moresby. Yes. Um, because so, that follows um, uh, the like the story of Kokoda. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah it does. It does because you would be you, you, would be to, go, you would be going through where the Japanese were making their incursion into the area, and then you get to the points where Australia were fighting them back and, and things like that. So it makes sense. Yeah. yeah, it was, it was, we went like the chronological way. Yeah. So, so what is, okay. So a couple of questions before we get into the track itself, what is the, what is the bush like there? And like we call in Australia, we call it the bush. I, I feel like you can legitimately call what you would be seeing jungle. It was jungle. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was just – so the Kokoda track for – for um, like for us, the Kokoda track is this, this wartime story, but it's actually just one of the main routes that um, locals use to get between villages. Mm. So it's – like there is a legitimate track that you follow. You're not yeah. sort of bush bashing mm-hmm. um, your way through it. There is a track in saying that it is still – you know, you still have to watch where you're stepping and it's muddy and there are bits that aren't as um, clear mm-hmm. and it's up, it's it's up, it's down. There is no such thing as flat in this. <laughs> yeah. And, and the, the other thing to n- note as well, and this is something that you go back in history and they talk about it, you know, the Papua New Guinean um, population, local population, it is not one population. It is many different tribes. Most yeah. of the, the dialects in the world, like if you add them all up, most of them are in PNG. Like, yeah. So tribes will not speak, and I hope I'm using tribes is the right word for it, they will not speak the same language between different tribes. So it's not like you've got one uh, – it's not like, you know, you can be in North Queensland and – it's the same people as you find in Melbourne, although that's, you know, questionable. <laughs> but it, so you, like th- these are almost like small nations within a nation. And yeah. they, as you say, they use this track. This is an ancient track. And that's why Japan decided to use it. Um, it must. So you start, you, you 
you camp out overnight and you start the journey. Um, and now, what do you wear for you the first day? And I, I warned Jessica I was going to ask her this question because <laughs> it sounds creepy, but it is interesting to me. What Do they tell you what you should wear? Do they tell you about footwear? And what do you end up deciding on for that first day? Because I want to know if it changed as you um, walked the track. I, uh, having done hikes hike before, I would not recommend, I would not recommend doing this as your first hike. Mm-hmm. Um, I have, I just have like your standard hiking pants, mm-hmm. um, the lightweight uh, ones, but I, uh, I always have ones that I can unzip to create yep. short. Yep. Uh I usually walk with double socks, but it was too hot. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had one pair of socks and my hiking boots, which are probably the, my favorite thing I ever bought. I bought them when I was in year nine. Mm-hmm. Um, I have, I did like all of my Duke's hikes in them. I think my mum stole them and did the Everest walk in them. Wow. Um, and I did Kokoda in them and they still look brand new. Wow. That's amazing. So, uh, how much so did I, they I, cost? They were, they probably, I think they were like two or three hundred dollars, which like a, nowadays is like a lot of money. But like yeah. back, um, what that two thousand and nine when I bought them mm-hmm. was a pretty solid amount of money. But they were the best thing I've ever bought because my dad's boots, which were like Gore-Tex lined, top of the range, didn't survive Kokoda, well, and he bought cool. them new. And so my yeah, mine look. I've also care for my boots more than anything else. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Um, so you, that, that's what you're wearing, basically. Yes, start, but, you, okay, start sorry. and just like no, you're right. Just like a normal polo shirt. Um, mm-hmm. But in terms of the shoes, one of the lads on my trip did his in Nike Pegasus. Oh my um, god! Yeah. Well, so he was actually probably like a like a genius because your boots would get wet, and if something like particularly if it rained, which it did towards the end of the trip, but mm-hmm. our boots didn't dry out. Um, because they're so thick. Mm-hmm. Um, but he he'd just take his shoes off and like they dry over lunch. Mm-hmm. And when he got back and like cleaned his shoes, his Nikes were good to go. He wore them oh, home. Wow. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, we all had like top of the line hiking boots and he's just out there doing them in a pair of trainers. <laughs> That's incredible. Now one of the things that the soldiers used to talk about is that, like, as you say, your, your feet never get dry. They just do not yeah. get dry. And they used to get something called jungle rot, and mm. their, their skin would literally start to rot uh, in their shoes. And that's why it's funny. You will see war um, movies where they'll say, take care of your feet, take care of your feet. feet. This was one of those environments where you really couldn't take care of your feet, and disease and, and things like that killed the vast majority of people that were fighting on the Kokoda Trail. And, and yeah. it's incredible to think that if you just went there to just exist, to try and just live, the environment is trying to kill you from the moment you get there. And these people were fighting on top of that and, and yeah. you know, in a war, like the great war that we've ever seen in history. Um, absolutely incredible. So, you start off this track. Does it start off easy-ish, or is it straight into, oh my god, what have I got myself into? Yeah, about because we started off like on the road, and then 
made, I think it was like a, a left turn and then we just hit jungle. Mm-hmm. I really struggled the first two days. Mm-hmm. Um, I would get to lunch and when, like, when, like on walks and stuff, if, if it's a particularly difficult bit or, you know, I'm having a bit of a hard time, I'm one of those people that will like just shut down and just focus on putting one foot in front of the other. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, the speaking was too much effort. Um, and I would get to lunch and I wouldn't want to eat. I would just sleep for mm-hmm. lunch, um, which not eating and keeping like electrolytes up is the worst thing you can do. Yeah. Uh, and, and then I would sort of stagger into camp um, in the evening. And so the first two days, by the end of the second day, because I'd had glandular fever the year before. Oh, jeez. Um, oh, no, sorry, the year, about 18 months before. So yeah. I, I'd, and I'd been really knocked around with that. Yeah. And so, like, on top of my, like, preparation just to go on the hike, I was just trying to get back to, like, my normal level of health. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was, there was a moment on the second night where my dad and I sat there thinking, okay, maybe we've done this a little bit too soon. Yeah. And have I am I going to be able to finish this because I don't know if I can continue this for another week, just this complete unresponsiveness that I'd sort of end up in. And then on the third day we got to lunch and I sort of sat down waiting, like ready to go to have my, you know, nap. And I was like, I don't, I don't need to sleep. And it was like, I sort of got my mojo and I was fine after that. But those first two days were it was a real shock to the system <laughs> i can imagine um and i and i'm guessing from from that third day onwards you 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 knew how to look after yourself and, or, or handle the yeah. situation a bit better yes yeah sort of i um yeah definitely we we took those uh, little like power gel sachets mm-hmm. uh and which when we first started them, we were like mixing them with water because they were awful. By the end of it, we could do like do it in one shot. We yeah. love them yeah. um, because we, you know, we'd look at sort of the topography map, work out where our big climbs were for the day, where we'd take it so we'd get like maximum benefit and, you know, worked out all those little things. Mm-hmm. And I probably look at this trip with a little bit of rose tinted glasses. Mm-hmm. Um I'd forget like how exhausted or like, how tired I was or how much everything hurt. Look, I, I, I've heard uh, Steve Ranella, who is a, a famous hunter from the US, he's got a really good podcast and he has talked about things that you look that at the time you were going through hell, but you look back on with those rose tinted glasses. And he, he talks about there's two types of things you can enjoy. There's like, the roller coaster enjoyment where in the moment you love it, it's awesome, but afterwards you sort of go like, oh yeah, that was cool. And then there's the other thing where you will prepare, you will put in hard work. At the time you might hate it. You're, you know, it's raining, it's wet, it's horrible. You'd rather be anywhere else in the world. But, you know, 10 years down the track, you're like, that was amazing. I love that. And it sounds like this is one of those, those. Yeah. Times. It was also the tour guide we had was a was a uh, gentleman named Martin. I think it was like the seventh time he'd done it, mm-hmm. and he he loved the history of the walk and he made it really personal for us. Mm-hmm. He you know he took us there was a rock it was a quite a large flat rock and he said you know this was known as Surgeon's Rock because this is where they would 
perform like battlefield amputations and and you know that all those it was it was the hospital room for the guys on the track and he then told us a story about two brothers who were serving there together and one of them took a gut shot and which you know take hours to bleed out Mm. and he uh he said, you know, these two brothers sat together and spoke about like their childhood and they sang songs. And one of their favorite songs was Danny Boy. He mm-hmm. then had a small speaker and played Danny Boy while we were sitting at this rock. Mm-hmm. And like there was, everyone was like crying and it was just a really, um, it was a really emotional moment. And I still can't listen to Danny Boy without crying. Yeah. Um, and that, I think that happened on the second day. And that really sort of it, it put things into perspective. And so anytime that I wasn't having the best time, I'd be like, Jessica, pull yourself together. You're not getting shot at. Yeah. And I sort of took that through with me through the walk. And I think, which was a good thing because look, I can be a princess. I know that. Um, and it made me, just I think appreciate it and enjoy it more as I was doing it because I'm like it could be worse yeah (laughs) you you've paid to be here (laughs) yeah and I guess that like the most special place I've ever been in my entire life is the Australian War Memorial in Canberra and Mm -hmm. I spent I must have spent three or four hours there just by myself walking around looking at everything and it was very somber but it was very special and yeah. you felt very lucky to be able to do it. I'm guessing that it everything goes from where we're going through the steps of other people in history early on to very quickly you you realize how special this area is and and this ancient you know part of the world has seen men at their best and worst. Exactly. And I think that was the other thing is like, obviously we're there as Australians because we want to know about the Australian history of the place. But like you said, it's, 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 that's such a blip in history for the people that live there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's just, it's just an everyday walking track for these guys. Yeah. <laughs> they must think it's so strange that we pay money to go do it. <laughs> yeah, they must. And, and they must be like, Wait a minute, you, you walk the entire thing? Why would you walk the entire thing? You can there's like, you know, a bunch of different places you can stop along the way and, and be where you need to be. Oh, we do it in nine days and like we, you know, we take packs of things and um, you know, shoes and that and these guys do it in three days barefoot. Yeah, and you know what? I think of I guess it's also a similar thing with the Sherpas that go up mm-hmm. to Mount Everest where they're like Oh yeah, we walk up the mountain, you know. Yeah. It's just a completely different. I'm just going to visit my parents. <laughs> yeah. It, it, whereas, like, a, a lot, a, a vast majority of normal people, if you took them to base camp, they they're literally, and you sit them down, they're dying. They're yeah. literally dying. Oh well, look, my my mom and my godmom got um, medivaced off. Oh wow. Um, I, only my, only my dad made it to base camp, but yeah, they got medivaced. Wow. <laughs> they couldn't yeah. get there. Yeah, I don't think people understand that there are places where you can be taken in the world and and sat in a chair and, you know, fed, looked after and stuff, but you're dying while you're doing it because the environment is so extreme and different to what you're used to. Yeah. So you're doing this trek. 
you start off you're struggling a little bit, but then you you sort of you you're in the space where you can start to do it. Tell me what it's like in terms of footing and what you're seeing around you on that third day. Uh, the third day, I'm pretty sure this is the day we went into the magical land. There was like, and it was, and we spent like two hours there where, because usually it was like mud. It was just mud and rocks and thick bush all the way sort of along you. Mm-hmm. But we entered this area and the floor was moss and it was like walking on, um, like it was like spongy moss. Yeah. And the the um, plant life changed and it was like walking into some mystical like Alice in Wonderland. Um, like there was flowers everywhere. It was the most incredible thing. Mm-hmm. And it was a little bit like, oh, okay, maybe maybe the hallucinations have started already because <laughs> very different to where we were an hour ago um but yeah and then that was sort of probably the one that stands out most for me just because it was so wildly different to uh everything else everywhere else we were which was just your typical like thick jungle and, and so and you really are just starting this trip at this point um do are there people that live in the local area that come to see the tourists or do you not see anybody except who you are walking with and the people of, that are touring you through? Or do you see other people that uh, are from nearby villages and stuff? Um, a few. You might walk past um, like some villages, but we saw quite a few particularly at either end, the starting off points and the finishing points, um, other groups, because you can do it the other way. So we'd walk past uh, other groups and which was quite funny for us on like the first couple of days, you'd walk past a group (laughs) and they, like you could tell how their trek had gone if they were really happy or really sad. (laughs) Um, And I, I, at first, those people that were walking out with like big smiles on their faces and stuff, we were like, how do they look so good after nine days? Yeah. Um, like, I get now. Um, but yeah, you did, we didn't really see too many people. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so are you starting to go into the mountains at this point? Because for people that don't know, there's a gigantic ancient mountain range through the middle of PNG that is part of the trek. And it, it's treacherous. And so are you into the mountains at this stage? I think, honestly, I just remember going up. <laughs> okay. It felt like we were in there the whole time. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that makes sense. When you look at the topography. <laughs> because, map. yeah, because you you can't really see around you mm-hmm. when you're walking. Like there were certain viewpoints um, that you, like at, but they were very rare. So you were just very, uh, very centered on where you were because that's all you could see. Okay. And is the jungle so thick that you just, you can't see five feet into it? Uh, pretty much for most yeah. of it. Yeah. Okay. And are there other points where you'll be walking along the, the, the track and it, like, it'll open up a bit and you're like, oh, wow, I'm looking down into, like, an ancient yes. valley? Pretty much. That was – you'd get glimpses. Um, 
I have to say the one weird thing, and I guess that's just coming from Australia, is there was no wildlife in these jungles. Mm-hmm. At no point did I think I was going to get eaten by anything. They don't really have um, big animals. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that probably made it a little bit easier mentally because, like, in Australia, I'd be like, I'm, I'm going to be killed by, like, a wild kangaroo. Um, <laughs> but they don't really have big marsupials or big mammals or anything living in the – uh, living in their their jungle. No, the, the I I think the most you would get is maybe what we would call dingoes, I guess. Uh, yeah, maybe they might have like a small sort of bush rat kind of thing. We, yeah. Um, but nothing, nothing too terrifying. Yeah. It was, yeah. It was, it was like the mosquitoes. Can you imagine if there'd been like? Because I was thinking about this before that, like the fact that there's. Nothing you know that's going to attack you or eat you or anything like that. Um, that must have been the one thing that was okay about this. Yeah, you know, I was, because yeah like a Yeti wasn't going to come out and eat me. That was that was like the one thing I didn't have to worry about. Yeah, yeah, incredible. So, t- so tell me more. Say so you, you, you're in day three. Um, you're starting to really get into it. And do you feel your body breaking down physically? day three I, I actually i got stronger mm-hmm. um i think you you i i got stronger and my so my group was exceptionally fast okay uh, we even like our tour guide martin who had done it as i said seven times he was like you guys walk so flipping fast yeah um and dad and i just sort of hung out at the back yeah. and there was you know martin was saying that you know they'd sort of usually get into camp around five or six at night every other group he's ever done the main group would get there at about five or six and then you'd have your stragglers getting in after dark sometimes because late as nine o'clock at night mm-hmm. we were all at camp by three o'clock every day oh wow yeah even like he he said because i i i said to the group i was like oh you guys are really fast i'm sorry that like <laughs> i'm so slow and he was like any other group in the world you guys would be like 10 k's ahead of each everyone else um so we we were quite a strong group mm-hmm. we didn't I was the one that was um lagging behind and even then I was only like 200 meters behind everyone mm-hmm. um we sort of made it good because we because we were at the back whenever someone else in the group was because you, you'd have you'd have good sessions and bad sessions yeah um and if someone else was having a bit of a, a slower session they'd sort of hang back with us and so we got to meet everyone in the group. We sort of cycled through everyone. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I'd say I got stronger and I, I enjoyed it. And I, I made the decision because it is a decision. You can go there and you can complain and whinge and hate every second of it because it's not pleasant. Mm. I'm, not, I'm not saying it is. Um, but I made that decision. I was like, no, you're like, you're going to appreciate your time here and you're not going to whinge and yes you're cold or um you're wet and you're hungry but that was your decision and so you're going to own it and enjoy it now what does camp look like when you get there camp camp was always um at a at a village small village okay um so each of the trekking companies sort of have deals with the, the various villages along the track Mm-hmm. And they also tend to be where um, your porters are from. 
So okay. it was quite nice. He'd walk into a village and, you know, their families would be there and he'd like meet their kids. And, yeah, it was, it was, um, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. And it would, so there'd be like, like the grass, grass huts. We all slept in tents. Um, and they were like, I mean, they'd what we call basic, but I don't really like that term. Yeah. Um, it was just uh, traditional and, you know, how, how um, they've been living for as long as they've, you know, I guess even spoken memory. Yeah. Um, and that's it, funny because that's, that's what works there. And if, like, I remember I watched a TV show. I don't know if you ever saw it where they took people from PNG and took them to England. Did no. you ever see There's a TV show and they took, I think they might have taken the chief and of a of a group of people from PNG and they took them to England and it was it was amazing because there were things that they didn't really understand like why do you need this yeah. and and they saw snow for the first time and it, it was just something that was just completely didn't make sense to them but I, I can imagine where you would get somebody from PNG and bring them into your house now and they'd look around and they they'd be like, all of this crap you have, like, why, yep. you know? A hundred percent. And you, I did sort of come back from it. And um, unfortunately, those life lessons didn't stay with me. <laughs> um, but going, you know, I, I remember I turned my phone on mm. um, when I got, when we finished the trek and I looked at all the messages and it was just like the usual rubbish from sort of back home. Yeah. And I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I get turned that. it back off. Um, and, and you know the other thing is too like if you just take your house and put it into one of those villages the thing is gone in about six months because it has rotted away nothing mm-hmm. works nothing's useful it's just of no use to anyone like yeah. they live exactly how you've got to live in those areas it's amazing to me yeah it, it is it's um it's it's different it's not yeah, it's just different to how we live, and I, um, I enjoyed seeing something that was new to me. Mm-hmm. Now, do, are there, and I don't know, like, are there houses or huts or anything? Do they are they off the ground? Uh yes. Okay. Most of the time they are just, I think, because of like the rain and also the mud mm-hmm. um, would soak up um, into them, and they, the the grass huts usually have like a hole in the roof. Yep. They have their fires in the middle um, that allow the smoke, like as a chimney, acts as a chimney. Mm-hmm. Um, they're quite uh, elaborate. Like yeah. they're quite impressive. They're not just, it's not just you know two sticks in the ground or anything like that. They're yeah. impre- impressive structures like, to, to survive the conditions that they do. Yeah, and literally in places where, like you or I, as we said, if if. You put us there and we were looked after. We're starting to die really quickly, <laughs> really, really quickly. Um, and, and they live there and, like, they've lived there for thousands and thousands of years. And it is uh, it is really amazing what humans can do, isn't it? It is. It is. It was, um, yeah, yeah, and then you come back to your sort of cities. Why do we need this? <laughs> yeah. You know, I always think with the the – rugby league players from PNG, like they always, when they play, they play so hard. Like you look at someone like a Jason Olam, 
He hits mm. so hard. And it it's like they're made out of, like, wood. You know, they're not, like, they're just so yeah. strong and tough. And there's something about people from PNG that's just so special in that regard. Oh, my my porter was a uh, was a guy called George, and I swear he had a fifth sense because he could tell when I like slipped or something or was about to fall, and I just feel this like angel's hand behind me grab the back of my um, pack and yeah. like hold me up. Yeah. <laughs> he must thought, he must be thinking, why is this girl here? <laughs> what is this white <laughs> girl doing here? <laughs> so when when you go into this village and you're getting ready to rest for the night. Um, does the village, is the village in general interested in, in these people that have turned up? Do they, can they, do they speak to you in English? Um, like what, is, is there much interaction or, or are they like, oh yeah, more tourists? <laughs> yeah, so, sometimes, um, some of the bigger villages, like if we stopped for lunch, um, we, particularly the kids, I think the kids was the big one. Mm-hmm. Um, they'd all they'd all sort of stand off and just stare at the the weird people that had um, in, in, infected their town for the day, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, there was a, there was a pretty strong language barrier, but it's just you know a smile and a laugh from each of you, and you like found a friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You have no idea what each other's talking about, but I have to I have to say they're just like the loveliest people yeah um you hear you hear such horror stories and unfortunately it's just a few bad eggs mm-hmm. giving everyone else a bad reputation mm-hmm. um yeah welcome you know welcome we they used to have small and this is capitalism for you but they'd, they'd they'd always be like a small store and they always sold little bags of twisties mm-hmm. or like and little coat cans mm-hmm. and uh, weed, it was like my daily treat. I'd have like a pack of twisties and a Coke can. They <laughs> <laughs> don't normally do. I don't know, drink soft drink. Yeah. But it was amazing what um, being in a Papua New Guinean jungle does to you. <laughs> now, and so when you sit down to eat or you sit down for your treat like that or something, like I imagine the levels of hunger and the need for your body to get nutrients is it's just screaming for it. It's it's you don't sort of really register what you're eating and it was sort of the same thing every day. Lunch was always um like migoring noodles. They just make a massive pot of migoring noodles and mm-hmm. after like seven days it's funny how people start um coming up with their own concoctions. There was a lot of people putting Vegemite in their noodles. Yeah. Um and and then dinner was always uh, like uh, veg like a vegetable soup kind of thing mm-hmm. uh, with I think it's, is it okra. That it's, sounds right. And the vegetables that I like had hadn't had before. Yeah. Um, but I don't think I've had since. But it's where yeah, when you're hungry and you know you need to fuel your body, it's it's funny what you'll you'll eat. <laughs> Yeah, and that, look, there's there's stories, there's all sorts of stories that come out of the Kokoda um, track from World War Two, but that like some of them are of um, soldiers who would fight over a lizard that was caught, yeah, and things like that. There, there's other stories I won't go into, but like the 
the desperate need for nutrition in an area. And as you say, it's not like this is an area where there are large animals around there. Like this, you know, there's there's not much in terms of big animals that you could kill and cook. So I don't even think I don't even really remember seeing fish, and if they were, they were tiny, like in the um, streams and stuff. Mm -hmm. So are are you having to walk through many streams? Uh, Our street, there was a lot of bridges, um, which took a lot of getting used to because they were just tree trunks. Um, and they get swept away every flood season, so they oh, just... <laughs> That's my nightmare. <laughs> I just, I they, just recoil they... back in horror. Oh. Yeah, um, some were better than others. Yep. Uh, you, yeah, they, so it wasn't until sort of the last day, the second last day maybe, that we, the track to the, this um, one particular river, snaked its way around and the walking track went over the same river multiple times. Yeah. And that was a like shoes off walk across through the water, but we didn't really do that too often at the start. Okay. And so as you're walking along the, the track, did you, was there, were there sounds you heard that were like really different? Like, was there anything you heard that you're like, what's that? Or, Wow, that sounds dangerous, or something along those lines. Um, not too much. Like some bird calls. Mm-hmm. Um, I was sort of more focused on my own heavy breathing and mm-hmm. um, where I was putting my feet. Yeah, it was, and I think it's so dense that sound doesn't travel too mm-hmm. far. Yeah, okay. And is was there a point in the the trek where you were like, and obviously, like, just getting through it, you have to watch where you're walking and like you've got to concentrate where yeah. you're walking. If you do an ankle or something, you're in a lot of trouble. You're in the middle of nowhere, and they literally have to carry you out on the track. I think that was my biggest fear is, like, I didn't want to be that person being carried out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, do Is there any part of it where you're like, I, I need to lift my head up as well and and, and take this in? Yeah, there was um, – you had to consciously make that decision because mm-hmm. – you were so absorbed in where you, you were looking down all the time and you were so absorbed in uh, where you were putting your feet to consciously make that decision. Okay. Look up. Particularly if you did happen to be on a ridge um, where you did get a bit of a view, mm-hmm. uh, you like look up and yeah, take it in and just sort of take a minute to appreciate where you were and what you were seeing because it was quite easy to just head down and keep going. And particularly, I'm that type of walker as well. I hate I hate walking with people who stop to take photos and um, just just keep walking and then just get to my destination and then stop type of person. Yeah, I get that. And and like if I, I completely get that because you can say like this is our start point, this is our end point. We're walking, and it's yeah. like it's almost that thing of like you got to stop to smell the roses. You know, that's yeah. part of the part of the journey is the journey. You know, it's yeah, not just the, exactly. the destination. Um, now, we're, we're, so people were taking pictures along the way. And, and this this might sound like a stupid question, but you might be like, oh, yeah, this is a good one. How did people keep their their cameras and stuff from being ruined on this trek? Were they keeping them in bags or what? Yeah, keep bags. Um, so I bought a GoPro for this trip um, yeah, yeah. and didn't do any research on it. And I think I pulled it out like on the first day. We had like a small creek cross crossing. It was nothing major. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and I pulled it out of my bag because I thought it'd be a great chance to use it and the battery was flat. Oh, um, apparently you can't just leave like a GoPro with a battery in. It goes, it uses power. Oh. Um, so I then had to carry this stupid GoPro around for nine days. <laughs> it's completely useless. Um, yeah, just like your standard, um, uh, like, yeah, in a like normal camera bag, people just yeah. bought sort of a digital camera. We okay. were really, we were really lucky in that we didn't have rain because you get that proper tropical mm-hmm. rain mm-hmm. until later on. Um, so our conditions were pretty good. I think our conditions were as good as it was ever going to get mm-hmm. um, in, in terms of keeping things dry. So, okay. So, and I don't want to get too far ahead in this, in this journey, but we don't know rain, do we? In Australia. No. <laughs> no. Tell us about the rain. It was, oh, it was, it was like something was just pouring a bucket on top of you. Mm-hmm. Just constantly. It was incredible. Um, but we, like I said, we only had that, I think we sort of had that proper rain, maybe one sort of for like the first half of one day. Um, but it was just, yeah, the drops were just incredible. Mm. There isn't anything like it. Yeah, we don't get rain here. Yeah, we, we just like drizzle. Yeah, yeah. We just like when I, it's funny when um, I feel like we're a little bit like England. You know, in England, we'll get a little bit yeah. of snow and everything shuts down, and then you hear people from Canada going, like, that's not what we even call <laughs> snow. You know, what are you talking about? I feel like we're that way with rain, where it's yeah. like, a little bit of rain and we're like, it's been raining for two days. It's like, no, this is not rain. This is this is what they would call mist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> now, you had a really unique and incredible experience halfway through your journey, which is worth a billion dollars in my opinion because P&G is – a rugby league mad nation. We know that. They're, they're probably more passionate about the game than anybody else in the whole world, and it's not even close. You So you come in. So tell me tell me what happens. Tell me you walk into the village. Tell me everything. So uh, I'll, I'll set the scene. It was 2015. It was I'm in the lead-up to the third game, mm-hmm. and it was a series Australia – Australia – New Zealand, uh, oh, my God, New South Wales. I'll get there eventually. <laughs> um, New South Wales uh, had lost the first game by a point and then they'd won the second game and we're going into the cider and if you'd asked any Blues supporter, we have already won the series. Like There was no way we could lose the third game. Mm-hmm. I stupidly wore a Blues cap the entire trip mm-hmm. um, and my dad, myself, and one other person on our trip were blue supporters. Everyone else was a Queensland supporter, despite most of them not being from Queensland. Uh, so Dad and I copped it um, for most of the walk. Yeah. The, we on the day of the uh, origin, we we were in. It was a bit of a larger village, and the village chief had a television, and there were people who had walked for a couple of days from other villages to. Uh, watch the game mm-hmm. and I had taken a blues flag as well and on my walking poles had set it up in front of my tent um, mm-hmm. that afternoon with great pride and uh, so 
when the game went to start, we, the TV, the antenna's about 30 metres in the air. It's a, like a grainy, snowy picture on the screen. You just hear, you know, Gus's voice. He's doing his final word. And there's probably a couple hundred um, locals and then us. <laughs> and it was just – New South Wales ended up being slaughtered 52 to 6. Biggest loss in state of origin history. Yeah. Um, and I don't even care. <laughs> I didn't even care. Mm-hmm. It was just, it was the most oh, incredible experience. You know, I thought I loved rugby league. It was nothing on these guys. Yeah. So are they like going crazy for two just, hours? Just crazy. Um, You could tell who the Queensland supporters were. Yeah. There was, um, you know, dancing and singing and um just complete craziness and we have to it's also a, a lot of these places are dry um in terms of alcohol yep yep so it was just like just genuine enjoyment it was the most incredible i will never i will never experience uh any sporting event like that <laughs> again <That's laughs> just so in, cool. in in the open air like we weren't in a room or anything it was just in the open air sitting on the dirt um, with this TV, you know. I'm not talking like a flat screen or anything. I'm talking like an old school 90s TV. Wow. Um, yeah, it was just it was just in, incredible. That's amazing. And, like, I guess they have to power it with the generator or something. Yeah, yeah, with the generator out the back. And I think state of, like, state of origin or footy is, like, the only time that this TV gets wheeled out. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's so incredible! It was, it was, yeah, it was, a, it was pretty special to sort of be welcomed in and uh, um, to to share it with them. Yeah, wow, what an incredible experience! And so, I guess <laughs> the end of the game comes, and you're like, "Let's get back on this track." <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm like, hey, we can keep walking now. We um, we expected like to just it for the rest of the trip because this happened about halfway through so it's a nine-day trek and we this, i think it was about halfway through yeah uh, state of origin was and i'm like i have to now wear this blues cap for the next four days i made a terrible mistake here and you can be honest did the did the blues flag come down oh yeah, right, <laughs> yeah. that is not stay up uh i um but one of the main instigators of the teasing, uh, Jordan, he, in the next morning, he said, don't worry, we respect that you guys stuck it out to the end of the game. The other guy, Craig, had left at half time. Oh. So he, he copped it for the rest of the trek and they left us alone because they respected that we'd stuck around. <laughs> I can't imagine watching half a game, hey? I know. I know, I but if I, if I left at halftime every time my team was losing, I'd never watch a game. <laughs> oh, um, yeah, especially in like, a situation like that. For us, it was so much less than like what was happening during the yeah. game. It was just sort of where we were and who we were with. That yeah, yeah. It was like, this is never going to happen again. And, and what's it like to be somewhere where life is so different for everybody? And then there's this weird little, almost like sent from Mars portion of a nor- your normal life. And it's it's even on a grainy old TV. Like, that must have been so surreal. Yeah, it was, it was 
it was for me it was like a reminder that um like sport can connect anyone mm-hmm. you know we are people who are from such different worlds mm-hmm. and yet we all just had this um this same love of the game and and it just brought us together we had no idea what each other was saying and like I, I barely speak English, so um, you know there was like an incredible language barrier and and a culture difference, and yeah. yet we could we could all come together and appreciate this game. Yeah, I think people forget that a lot, and I've talked about it recently a bit in terms of like, you know, we spend so much time arguing amongst ourselves, we forget that we love. 99% of the same thing and we've yep. got more in common with each other than we do that's different. Exactly. And rugby league is like rugby league is a religion mm-hmm. um, across the Pacific. Um, and, and, you know, it's like I said, I, I thought we love the game. It's nothing, <laughs> nothing mm-hmm. on how, how these guys feel about it. <laughs> yeah. Look, the, the best atmosphere I've ever been to for a game was there was a, a game between Samoa and Tonga at Penrith football oh. stadium. And I have never been in an atmosphere like it where you had these, you know, two different sides, two different nations. And it was just enjoying that we all enjoyed this thing together. Yeah. There, there wasn't even the, – the result didn't matter. I can't even tell you who won. I can't remember. But um, the result didn't matter. It, it was just like, oh, you know, our guy scored. Oh, your guy scored. Everyone's waving flags and singing – two hours and I will never forget it. And I can imagine that the experience you had for origin during that night was along the same lines of like, isn't this all just great? Exactly. It was just one of those things like um, it was, it was strange because going into it, I was excited about the game because mm-hmm. I was excited that New South Wales may win it. We're going to win. Yeah. We're going to win. Um, and by the end of it, the least of my worries, I didn't care. Yeah. It would have been nice, but it wasn't the thing I was going to remember. <laughs> I, yeah. I think, actually think, in fact, that it was such a big loss, made it a little bit more memorable. <laughs> yeah. Well, what a what a, an absolutely beautiful rugby league experience. Yeah. So you wake up the next day, you try and forget all that happened. There's always, <laughs> there's an origin hangover, a mental Oh, hangover. massively. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how... <laughs> How many minutes are you thinking about the loss before you don't care one iota about it because your feet are hurting, your back's hurting, you're starving? You're like, how long does that take? Yeah, it was pretty quick. It was pretty damn quick. Um, I think, like, woke up. Um, I'm, I, I think someone in the group made a smart comment, and then it was into planning the day and like hearing about what we were doing. And my attention was immediately taking to that giant mountain I was about to climb. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it was, it, it was one of those things that like, I appreciate it in the moment. And then like I had to get on with the walk. And then at the end I could sort of go back and think that was brilliant. That was incredible. Um, but yeah, like you said, it was a, it was a pretty quick turnaround in attention. Let me tell you. So what's it like when you have a mountain in front of you to get over the top of? Because even though there's a, a track there, it's, it must still be pretty treacherous and you must still have to be pretty careful. Yeah, they, uh, I, it was one just one foot in front of the other. 
mm-hmm. and you don't think about the top. You think I'm just going to get to that tree, mm-hmm. and then you keep going. And I, I, I'm also one of those people that I hate. I hate people who stop all the time. Yeah. Who will like walk 100 meters and stop and like, oh, I need a rest. Yeah. Walk, stop. I'm just a just keep going, just keep going. And when you get, you know, to a certain point, then you can stop and you can have a longer rest. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very much just one foot in front of the other. Watch where you're going. Uh, I like just get lost in your own head. That's how that's how I do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like someone could be having a conversation with me, and I would have like no idea what they're talking about. I would have just tuned everything else out and focusing but I did get into a situation at one point mm-hmm. it was probably like day six or so it was quite it was like a really bright orange clay mm-hmm. and there were rocks in it that were sort of black and it looked like butter chicken and at this point uh, I think I was a little bit down on electrolytes and I started hallucinating that it was mm-hmm. butter chicken, that I was walking through butter chicken because <laughs> it just had like the same texture, the same look. Yeah. And I had to physically restrain myself multiple times from bending down to eat it. It was the most bizarre experience because I knew it wasn't butter chicken. Yeah. I knew it was clay, but I just, I found myself sort of bending down to like touch it and eat yeah. it. Yeah. It was, I've, I've never hallucinated before. That's the closest I think I've ever come. It was incredibly strange. I've never had anything like it before or since. Yeah. Now, d- didn't somebody else have the same yeah, experience? Yeah, yeah. When, when we sort of got like, to the next like rest stop, mm. I sort of said, yeah, I, I kept thinking of a butter chicken. And one of the other girls went, I did the same thing. So it was nice to know I wasn't, completely crazy yeah you're, you're <laughs> basically else. at this point you're all dying at the same rate <laughs> yeah it was like oh good i'm the same level of insanity as someone else on the trip that's all i can ask for at this point <laughs> that's incredible and yeah. I, I guess is that along this journey you saw every single type of mud and dirt <laughs> that ever has existed yeah so, so much mud it's and like it's incredible like mud can cling to Mm-hmm. Um and yeah, it was. You, you'd think it would just be like your feet, but you'd fall over, you'd like end up all over your back and in your hair. And I have quite long hair. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there's no showers mm-hmm. uh, along the track. If you're lucky and you get into camp early enough, you might get a swim. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Just different. Like the shades of mud is incredible. I think that was the thing: bright red, bright orange, or black. Yeah, typical mud seems really boring now. Yeah, I can imagine. I um, I, I remember reading about in World War Two when the Germans went into Russia and there was just a certain sort of mud, and they weren't prepared for it, and it basically clogged up everything, all of their machinery and stuff like that. And they, it was like this really weird clay sort of so, stuff. Yeah, it's yeah, le- yeah, clay. There's a lot of clay. Or mm. it felt like a lot of clay, mm. um, like m- more clay than mud. Yeah. You, and if you put your boot in the wrong spot, it was like a like a cartoon quicksand effect. It would just stick, and you'd 
number of times I like would pull my foot um, and my, my foot would come out of my boot. Wow. That's incredible. Like, oh. You had good boots. I had good boots. It was just like the suction yeah. would um would just hold onto my shoe. I'm like, oh. Is that you're hopping around like an idiot so you didn't put your sock in the in the mud? <laughs> so tell me another thing I want to ask about the mountains because I I've read about where the the soldiers would talk about they would see the mountain and it'd be like okay we've got to get to the top of this mountain before you know sundown or whatever and mm-hmm. they get to it and they get to the top of it and it was false summit and they would find that they were miles away from where they thought they needed to be next and how soul destroying that was did you find you were you would think okay we'll get to the top of this mountain and then you'd get there and it's like oh my god look at this bloody mountain in front of me that i've got to get to the top of still yeah i came to hate um bends because yep. you'd sort of get to the top and you'd be like we've made it i can sit down and then you'd realize there was a bend and it kept going mm-hmm. um i i it, but I also think that comes back to in terms of what you're saying is, you know, they were on a mission yeah. and like they had to do these things to survive. I knew I was going to get to the end. Yeah. Um, and that it didn't matter when I walked what, I still had to walk it. Yeah. And like I, I can't imagine what that would be like where your genuine survival rested on making it to the top of that summit. Whereas I always knew that I'd be okay. Yeah. Like it didn't matter how many mountains were in front of me, I would get to the end. Yeah, and yet, like you knew you weren't about to be ambushed. You knew there weren't yeah. booby traps. You knew that there weren't mines and things like that. Um, as you get towards the end of your journey, do you do you start? Um, is it an uplifting feeling, or are you at this stage so physically drained that? you just get to the end? Um, so I think it was like day six or seven. We stopped at a place called Brigade Hill, mm-hmm. which is where there's um, there's a small like cemetery and someone has, someone planted a lone pine there. Yeah. Uh, no one knows who. And usually these things take like a hundred years to grow. Yeah. A decent size. This one grew in like five years or something. Yeah. And we, there's, um, like the Anzac flags are there and we had a small Anzac ceremony and then we, uh, that night we walked sort of a little bit into the bush and our guide read us a diary passage from one of the soldiers who had, who had been on the track. Mm-hmm. And then we all like turned off our lights and it was the first time we realized just like how dark um it is at night when you don't because because these guys traveled at night in the dark so they weren't seen yeah and um it was it that was a it wasn't a downer moment it was a it was a really poignant moment mm-hmm. and everyone that night usually we sit around the campfire and you know talk all night that night everyone just went to their tents it was a really strange um it was a really strange feeling it wasn't like, I don't know how to explain it. wasn't one of sadness. It was just, I think everyone was um, dealing with it in their own way. Yeah. And then the next morning, I think people were not uplifted, but like renewed. Yeah. 
because at this point you've been there nearly a week um you are tired and everything hurts and whatnot everyone was a little bit renewed after that um we knew that the end was in sight but there was also sadness that it was going to be over mm-hmm. um and yeah i think people just sort of you as i said i was getting stronger as i went on and so really made the effort to enjoy it and just appreciate it for what it was and realizing that this was just such a, a, a special experience. Now, is there a point where you start to feel yourself coming out of the jungle? Uh, n- no, not really. Oh, yeah. We sort of on the, the, the last climb where you get to those famous gates, uh, arches at the top, the ones that say Kokoda tracks, mm-hmm. it's at the top of a, I would call it a hill now after some of the things we climbed (laughs) and we all sort of convened at the bottom and then it was, you could see them at the top. And as I, I cried from the bottom to the top, just, just overcome with um, emotion. Like I can't believe I've done this. So many people told me I wouldn't be able to um, like how, how I was at the beginning of the trek towards the end. And I just sort of, I cried the whole way up, which is really terrible for breathing. Um, (laughs) We were trying to climb uphill, and then you just it you just sort of like emerge at the top, and then there's a bit of a clearing at the top. There was no real feeling of coming out of junk, the jungle. Yeah, it was just you walk to the top, and then there's like some mini buses there ready to take you back into Port Moresby. <laughs> wow, that is absolutely amazing, and uh, like, I mean, you, you must all be hugging each other and I mean you've all done this together yeah it's incredible how a week earlier we were complete strangers and there's just a real bonding experience uh and you know things that even people who have done the trek you still have like inside jokes or experiences that you only had with the people in your group mm-hmm. and five years later and like we all still um but keep in touch oh, and nice. years later we all still like keep in touch and there's a yeah, there's a real, it's, it's a, I don't want to use it, but it's like that brothers in arms kind of thing. Yeah. Um, you, you do really feel that, but I was, it was also just really special. My, the fact that I got, did it with my dad and, um, that was just a really special moment for the two of us. I can imagine. Yeah. Now that, that bus, I'm, I'm guessing you just took a bus ride back to a hotel room. Yeah, bus ride and um, the best shower I've ever had. <laughs> yeah, now I was going to say this because we talked about this a few weeks ago and I didn't want to sound like a creep, but <laughs> I said to you that first shower after all of that must have just been ridiculous. It was, it was just, yeah, I, <laughs> I just stood there. It was just, which was, it was a strange thing because I'd been like wet and damp, like my feet hadn't been dry in a week. Yeah. Um, my clothes were always, you know, sweaty and what, whatnot, but under hot water, just getting the dirt out of my hair, <laughs> um, and out from under my fingernails. Yeah. It was, yeah, the longest, long, I think it's the longest shower I've ever had. <laughs> I bet the, the, that place, yeah. <laughs> they just know, they're like, oh man, all the hot water's going, there, there's another <laughs> they were, tour they group were, coming in. Their water bill just must be extraordinary <laughs> I was like just small things I was just so excited to um like brush my hair I have like really curly hair that knots really easily and when it's 
like when I was on the hike and it was dirty and muddy and it just it was it was awful and we, it was just like, were you sorry st- were you still like washing your hair like a week later and being like yeah. like little bits you know <laughs> yeah I think so <laughs> <laughs> what was the the um the state of my feet was and I know feet talk isn't fun but Hey, speak uh, for yourself. No, go on. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just make kidding. a lot of money. I, um, look, I make too many feet jokes. Seriously, I've had people say to me, you really like feet, don't you? I'm like, no, I just think it's super funny. But anyway, go on. Um, just like the state of my feet and the yeah. amount of like, I, they were literally just being held together by tape. Yeah. Um, by the end of it, just uh, blisters and, cause, um, and whatnot. And... Did you find that the, the layers of skin on your feet look like they wanted to sort of come apart? It felt like that. We weren't, yeah. I don't think we were there long enough for like jungle rot to set in. Yeah. Um, it was, but they were definitely tender. Yeah. Um, and I wouldn't have, yeah, I wouldn't have been like wearing heels or anything anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> it took, it took, it, the problem my feet just took the longest to, to recover. Yeah. How long do you reckon it took? I reckon it was really like a good six months. Whoa! Because like in turn, like it, I know this is, I know it's really gross. I'm sorry, but like my toenails, yeah. um, getting them sort of because because the uh, skin around them was always like wet. Yeah. Um, it like the toenails like cut in, um, like down the sides, and yeah. like it probably took like six months for them to be back to what they were before. I decided to spend a week in the jungle. Did you did you lose any toenails? Uh, no, I don't think so. No, I didn't. I didn't lose any toenails. Oh, that's lucky. Yeah. Yeah, because I like, and it's crazy. That's what happened after like ten days. Mm, I couldn't uh, imagine that these guys spent like months there. Yeah, I, I, it's just, it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. And like you're doing it in modern, proper yeah. walking boots as well. On top of that. Uh, absolutely amazing. Um, did your your feet? I and it's. I'm sorry for talking about your feet so much, but <laughs> was did you find that there were muscles in your feet that ached for a while uh, that you didn't even know were there? Yeah. Uh, just I mean, uh, it was my knees more oh, so. Yeah. Because you, if when you're walking uphill, all you want to do is walk downhill, right? Yeah. Because uphill, obviously is quite strenuous, but downhill, what people forget is that your knees and your ankles absorb all the pressure as you're going down and you got your mm-hmm. pack on and mm-hmm. it's just repetitive over and over and over again. And so it was, yeah, my knees, I have like netball knees um, and ankles. So they're not in great condition. Yeah. Uh, and it was like my knees and my ankles that I think really bore the brunt of it more so than my feet because and also my feet, with the, like my boots and I had um, like I strapped my ankles and stuff that yeah. they were a little bit more protected than just my knees. Yeah. Yeah. And the, like aside from your feet physically, did you, how long do you feel like it physically took for you? Because during this journey, your body is breaking down and even just your body is breaking down, like in terms of it, it like, you're not getting the nutrients you really need for this sort of journey. I know that you were eating all the time and stuff as much as you could, but you're not really getting what you need for something like this. No one really can. How long did it take for you to feel like 
that healing process for your body had sort of completed outside of your feet, which took six months? Yeah. Probably a week. So we, um, the night we got back, we didn't sleep. Cause we were on like one of the first flights out. We had to be at the airport at like 5am or something. Oh and wow. We were all flying back to our respective cities in Australia. So we all sat around the pool, um, and just like, and, and, you know, talked about the trip and, and just enjoyed our time together Yeah. and then got on the plane. So I didn't sleep. I didn't really sleep on the plane. And then by the time we got home, it was sort of evening in Australia. Mm-hmm. And I think I slept for about 14 hours. Yeah, I was going to say, um, like the just, best coma you've ever yeah, had. Yeah, genuine coma is exactly what it was. <laughs> and and then I, that day I didn't really feel like not any difference I had on the walk. It was the week, yeah, the week after. Yeah. Um, just, yeah, I think everything hurt. But also I felt stronger because I'd built up muscles that, I hadn't had before or um, not, at least not since I played any sport. Mm-hmm. So um, I felt stronger than I did. And it wasn't as bad. I thought it, thought I'd be like, just want to lie down for a month afterwards, but about yeah. a week and I was ready to go. I think I went back to uni like a few days later. Wow. And look, I guess that when you've been through something like that, the thought of getting out of bed and, and going to uni is uni. nothing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I do remember though, uh, I was walking from, uh, I was walking like to the uni building and there was a puddle. It was on the, in the ground because it was raining. Yeah. And it was like on the footpath and there was a road on one side and a bridge, like a drop off the other. Mm-hmm. And I looked and I went, I don't want to get my feet wet. <laughs> puddle. And I was like, Jessica, you've just been in the jungle for like 10 days. You yeah. sort yourself out. You can walk through this tiny, like tiny puddle. <laughs> Yeah, you just get to a point where you realize, oh no, I am, I am that person. I, yeah. I, you know, I'm not a jungle warrior. I really yeah. am. You know, yeah. stepping over puddles and stuff. Um, emotionally, it, it must have been. It, it's something different to deal with than you deal with in your normal life. Yeah. It's something that you chose to do, and it's something that was super rewarding um, on many different levels emotionally did it take you a certain amount of time to get through that or were you just straight back into life like did Uh, did you look at things differently and you know it probably took me a good two weeks to be able to talk about it without crying yeah just and it was yeah it was I don't know if it was sort of pride in myself that I did it because (laughs) um I I, I can be a princess. I'm not like a fan of dirt or like things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I'm, but when I am out on a hike or whatever, it does, that doesn't bother me, but a lot of my friends don't see that side of me. Yeah. Uh, so they were like, Oh, you're not going to survive it. Blah, blah, blah. And so there was like that pride that, Hey, I showed like showed you all that I could and I did and I smashed it. Mm-hmm. Um, there was also that sense of appreciation for what those before us had gone through. Mm-hmm. And, I'm not just talking about our and Zach's. There was there was a moment uh, towards the end where we got to the last place that the Japanese horses reached, mm-hmm. and it's very easy to think, you know, oh, the Australians won, and you know, at, obviously at the time a Japanese invasion 
would not have been great. Um, but, you know, you have to remember that these guys went through the exact same things as our troops did, but they then had to turn around and walk back. Yeah. And the culture of Japan is you you win or you die. Yeah. And the, the, the shame that they had to go back to was worse than anything that we could ever imagine. And that was a, and I've, I've been to Hiroshima and I've seen what the atomic bomb did. Mm-hmm. And it, it, I don't, I, I don't like the whole, um, I don't know how to, I don't know how to explain it. I, I just, I don't like the whole thing while we won kind of attitude because I don't know that we did win that battle, but, I think it needs to remember what the Japanese troops did go through because at the end of the day, they're people too. And it's part of the story. You know, it's, you can't tell, you know, however you feel. The winner winner writes the history books. That's always how it is. That's true. And, And however you feel about one side or the other, if you want to put it that way. Yeah. Both of their stories are the story of what happened. Yeah. And, and you can't forget one side of, in that. Exactly. And I, I think it's, um, it's I, like I, I like studied Japanese at high school and, mm-hmm. and um, it's, it's the, the attitude. It's not even like mentioned the Second World War, um, apart from if you go to Hiroshima or Nagasaki where you see the, the destruction. Mm-hmm. And it's like, hey, guys, we're not – we're also, you know, um, perfect in this war. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a, 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 I mean, it was the the greatest war in human history, and um, man, uh, it, it's it's hard to contemplate living through that sort of stuff, and it's hard to contemplate, you know, when the the war starts and you think of say a twelve year old boy who yeah. is going to end up fighting in this war. You know, and yeah. he might end up on the Kokoda Trail. He might end up in North Africa, but he's going to end up somewhere where it's a human meat grinder. And I, we can't even begin to imagine what it was all like. And, you know, it's uh, I, I think it's important to learn these stories. And because there's the thing of like not letting history repeat itself, I think that's important. And, you know, I would say to anybody it, it it can be one of those things that is sometimes you think, man, do, do I really want to go back into World War Two history and stuff? But when you do start to do it and you start to learn what everyone had to go through on True. all sides, yeah. it is rewarding on some level. And I think you get a, a good perspective on life out of it as well. I think so. I think uh, my, my dad's from England and he felt, the need to do it as I say new Australian he's not he's been here for 30 years Mm -hmm. um but I feel like he felt he had to do it to appreciate the country that he now calls home yeah and I was just along for the ride and I got more out of it than I ever thought I would Mm -hmm. uh but it was I I feel like it is something that's um able any Australian who is able to should do you do you do sort of change your perspective on things um a little bit and you know take what we have 
so easy to complain about everything. It's like take a minute to reflect on uh, the way of life we have now is is because of what these and like you said, reservists did in a, a jungle across the ocean. Mm. And literally being told like, if we don't stop Japan here, we're in trouble. And yeah. you know, there, there's one of the interesting things about Australian military history is we tend to celebrate the moments where, you know, it's not all victories. I was going to say, we have to be the only country in the world that celebrates a military loss. Yeah. Gallipoli. (laughs) Gallipoli, Kokoda, like there's a, a, you know, Lantan, there's a bunch of them where, you know, these aren't moments of complete victory over an opponent there. A lot of times we survived. We didn't give up in in moments like that. And, um, you know, Kokoda is... It, it's a version of Australia's Thermopylae in that we we had a moment where our young men stood in the way of the Japanese Empire, and, and it was like you've got to you, we have to stop them here, and, and yeah. we did. And you know it, it it's an extraordinary story. And hearing about your journey along the 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 track is. Uh, as soon as you told me that you'd done it, I was I was like, oh my god, we have to do an episode because I I, I always find those moments that somebody gets to experience something so special and so unique, you've got to hear about it. You just have to. I just I just my I just hope some encourages someone else to do it because there's nothing like it, and there's it's such a unique thing to Australian mm-hmm. it's like someone else could walk that track and wouldn't get the same experience that we would because we don't have that emotional connection to it or understanding of it that yeah. someone from another country would definitely now if anybody listening wants to do it what is something you would say to them no matter how big or small it is even if it's something ridiculous absolutely ridiculous what would you say to them to do or pack or do differently than you did? Is there anything along those lines? Like if you went back, is there something that you would do differently? Take snacks. <laughs> Take snacks. <laughs> it was what? just what dad and I had like protein bars yep. and um, those like gel packs I mentioned. Yes. The protein bars, are, which are awful anyway, but they turned into like dead set cement in the damp. Oh. Um and they were like the only like snacks we had. And so that's why we were always really hungry because we weren't eating throughout the day. <laughs> and on like the first day we went, we are idiots. Just like a trail mix or something would have been nice. Yeah. Uh, that would be take snacks. Okay. Anything else? Uh, you don't need that many clothes because it doesn't matter like what you're wearing in terms of it's going to smell and be sweaty no matter what. Mm-hmm. Uh, and get a stepping machine. That was my secret trick. Oh, so you use one beforehand. Yeah, I had a stepping machine that I set up in front of a TV, yeah. and I would just, um, with my boots, make sure your boots are well worn in. Yes. Uh, and I would just, I'd have a pack on, and I would just put this, like, TV on um, and just 
what whatever if i was good if i was gonna just you know spend the afternoon watching tv or whatever i would be on the stepping machine um instead and just because building it's uh my dad uh, jogs every afternoon so he thought he'd be right um because he's jogging all the time uh but it's like a different muscle group when you're going uphill yeah so it was like about about building those muscles so the stepping machine uh, was the best thing i just bought one like second hand just used it for the time that I was training and then sold it on. Um, it was the best thing we did. That sounds like amazing advice, but at the same time, I totally wish I could have walked in and seen you and taken the piss out of you at <laughs> yeah, the same time. Yeah. You know. It was a look. It was a look. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what are you no, doing? I'm just do. watching TV. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, it's been absolutely amazing to talk to you about this. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about it. Thank you. Thank uh, you for letting me. It's been a while since I've uh, got to relive it, actually. Oh, it's incredible. Uh, like, this might be my favourite episode of the whole podcast ever. It's oh, just <laughs> really amazing to hear about it. Um, where can we follow you online? Uh, I am on Twitter at Jessica Tenniel, T-E-N-E-A-L. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm on there usually uh, talking absolute rubbish about sport. Yes, and if you're a Newcastle Knights fan, <laughs> feel free to follow her because you'll find a kindred spirit. She'll. Uh, <laughs> yes. She goes. We can all... be all miserable together. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on. We're going to have you on again very soon to talk about something else. I think maybe talk about Hiroshima um incredible I want to I want to talk to you all about that right now but thank you for coming on it's always lovely to talk to you and uh yeah it's great can't wait to be back thank you